Hello and welcome to In Line With Nature, the podcast that explains an approach to building that puts the future of our planet first, with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I talk to experts about modern day construction, its impact on the natural world and why the time for change is now. I'll be talking to a series of guests about new approaches to design, reimagining a built environment at one rather than at odds with nature. Hi, I'm James Drinkwater. I lead the Built Environment Programme at the Loudest Foundation, which is a philanthropic foundation focused on the dual crisis of climate change and inequality. Brilliant. And on your Twitter bio, it says supporting innovative efforts to inspire and challenge the built environment industry to harness its power for good. I just wonder if you could break that down with us. So could you just define at the very basics, the built environment industry and just give some context or further explain why and how it needs inspiring and challenging in this way to harness its power for good? Sure. Gosh, yes, it does need inspiring and challenging. So so at the Loudest Foundation, we're really focused on buildings, these, these great big things that make up so much of our city. When you view the world from, you know, from, from outer space, you see cities made up of, of buildings, forests and, uh, and oceans. So buildings um, currently have one of the greatest impacts um, uh, uh, of any built asset of anything in our in our economy on the climate. So they represent about 40 percent of all global carbon dioxide emissions and that's from building the things that's from living in them or working in them heating them or cooling them um, and indeed decommissioning them deconstructing them Um, and they currently create a number of other really big impacts as well so waste they're about a third of all waste and we spend 90 percent of our lives indoors believe it or not that's been particularly acute during uh, the corona period so we shape these things buildings and they shape our lives thereafter um, so their impact on our health our well-being indeed their broader impact on society and um, the way we design our cities and buildings defines the way way that we live um, so we are trying to ensure that the impact that they have is a positive one on both climate and society and we really transform a sector that so far the real estate the construction sector that's been relatively slow to, to really bring itself into the 21st century so there you've identified probably one of the biggest challenges that it's slow what are the other challenges that we're facing now and are they new challenges or are things getting increasingly worse Sure, indeed, it's it's been moving way too slow, and I think the speed of the transformation needs to rapidly pick up. Mindsets need to shift. We need to get new ways of building, new technologies out there much faster. But I think, again, picking up on you know the nature of what we tackle at Loudest, this dual crisis of of both the climate and of inequality, we need to create win wins here for people and for for the environment. So. As we start to improve our homes across Europe, we've got all these existing buildings that have to be made more climate friendly. There's a risk that we go through the greatest gentrification process the region's ever seen and house prices are constantly pushing up. So we need to find ways of of renovating these homes, these offices and so on to be more climate friendly, but also models that don't, don't further push up prices that don't, um, you know, again, affordability has become a really, really big issue for people. So we've got to really find stuff that's at the sweet spot of accessibility for the masses and that can really rapidly scale up in terms of the solutions we need to deploy in this sector now. 
And is that in terms of the kind of materials that we should be using and the materials that we should be moving away from? Sure, I'm, I'm glad you've asked the question because I think globally there's been an understanding since the fuel crisis of several decades ago now, global understanding by, by governments that we need to tackle energy use in buildings. So energy efficiency schemes, government incentives for renewables and so on, this, these have become a thing over the last couple of decades. But a big chunk of the problem has been totally out of you. And that relates to materials. Uh, as I think I mentioned earlier, these things create a lot of waste, about half of all resource use goes into building buildings and, and construction one way or another. And we're addicted to some of the materials of the Industrial Revolution, your concretes and, and steels and so on, that represent a huge chunk of global emissions. So we've got to radically dematerialize, do things in lots uh, of a much more resource efficient way, but also switch from fossil based materials to more renewable and to, to more bio-based regenerative materials. So at the Loudest Foundation, for example, we've helped set, set up a new accelerator called Built by Nature, a new network and accelerator fund that's there to help ensure that materials like sustainable timber and bio-based materials more broadly can start to actually play on a level playing field with the materials that we've been, been used to since the Industrial Revolution. So we've got to go through a, a real shift, not just in how much resource uh, we use to build our buildings, but in the kind of resources that we're working with. We think working with nature um, that can remove carbon from the atmosphere uh, that naturally is, is more renewable. To do that in sustainable ways is, is really one of the pathways forward for the sector. So what sorts of things should we be looking at? I mean, just to break it down so that we can understand, we can imagine what kind of materials, how does that work? How do we take the carbon out of the construction industry? Sure. Well, I think, you know, when people think of timber buildings, for example, they might think of the sort of rickety old buildings of a few hundred years ago. And one of the really transformational technologies for the building sector is a thing called cross-laminated timber. This is um, timber that's really basically compressed together, um, slats of, of timber at really, really high pressure to create um, a structural material cross-laminated timber or mass timber, um, uh, as it's called, um, engineered timber that's as strong as steel and that you can build multi-storey buildings, not 40 storeys high, but a lot of the six to eight storey buildings that are typical across cities around the world, those structures that are currently built out of, of steel, uh, out, of, uh, out of concrete cement, um, those could actually be built out of modern mass engineered timber. But I think because it's a relatively newer innovation, Actually, this, this new form of, of 21st century engineered timber, highly fire resistant, super, super strong. And because it's new, the sector just isn't used to using it. There's a lot of perceptions around it. There's new costs uh, involved with trying new things. So again, we're trying to take materials like that and show they can be done. There are many of these mass timber buildings now across Europe and the world and show how they can be done at scale with the right sort of tweaking of, uh, of regulation, with the right sort of investment conditions and interest from the investor community. And ultimately, with a skilled sector, developers, architects and engineers and others who are able to, to start to build with this as a more mainstream material rather than in its current niche. So what needs to be done by whom? I think it's by whom that probably is the most important question, isn't it? I, I mean, um, are we talking about this being exclusively the realm of architects and the construction industry? 
Or are there also things that we and listeners as tenants and homeowners can do to kind of accelerate the process? And I know that's a big question. Sure. Well, I I think, you know, the transition needs all of us to be at the table. It needs all of the tools. At Laudis, we're very significantly focused on working with policymakers. Again, a lot of legislation has been shaped around a sector that's used the, the materials of the Industrial Revolution. So legislation, the way the sector structure is geared around these mainstream materials and policymakers need to act. Cities, those who actually control a lot of the building that goes on at local level, need to start procuring these new materials and looking at kind of how how some of their current procurement rules get in the way of actually newer materials like bio-based building materials scaling up. Um, And indeed, the sector, developers, architects and engineers, asset owners, uh, the broader actors need to start to to get on board with this. But I think you you shine a light on a really interesting question. Absolutely, people drive the culture of the sector. And I think Mm. there's a lot of sort of deeply ingrained culture that sits against bio-based materials. I always give the example of the three little pigs. That's that story I, I tell to my own kids where, you know, the house that's made of bricks is fab um, and the house that's made of straw that few hundred years ago as an older building material probably wasn't great. Um, that, that house is much, much worse. And actually the way we can build straw bale buildings or, or mass timber buildings, these are now 21st century technologies. The, we're working with nature in ways that have been brought into the future. And I think, again, as residents, uh, people who are specifying how our home extensions and other things are built, we can get on board with this, this bio-based material revolution as well. So when you talk about cities and we talk about residents, uh, it obviously needs to ask the question, particularly with a global sort of forum and a global outlook, is this a worldwide problem at the moment? Are there some countries that are faring worse than others? And again, a big question, but I think that wraps into it. Are there countries that are doing brilliantly who we should look to to emulate? Sure. Well, it's, it's a different picture all around the world. Construction for any nation and our buildings both both to be built and, and existing are one of the big impact uh, the big hitters in terms of climate impact that doesn't change really wherever you go but say in Europe 80% of the buildings that will be around in 2050 have already been built so renovation and, and getting the the existing building stock up to scratch with climate targets that's one of the big challenges in the region whereas rapidly growing regions like Asia, Latin America, about 80% of what's going to be there in 2050 has yet to be built. So new build is a a really big issue. So whilst the problems are somewhat shared, somewhat different, I think everyone shares this need to focus on construction and the building sector. And governments are starting to slowly wake up to that. I mean, I think some of the centers uh, of global brilliance, the Nordic countries, um, have really been leading the sustainable building agenda, looking at both climate impacts, that's the total climate impact of the sector, both that materials piece, where countries like Sweden and Finland and Denmark have already released legislation aimed at setting carbon targets that, that tackle that material piece. Um, but I'd, I'd say, you know, again, it's not just the usual suspects. There are There's brilliant leadership everywhere. I know Chile um, in the lead up to the last COP has released a strategy that's really trying to tackle some of the issues surrounding forests, but the positive dynamic that the right kind of sustainable demand from sectors like construction for sustainable wood, that, that, that the kind of uh, dynamic that, 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 again, that positive demand 
can can help uh, generate in terms of sustainable forestry. So in each of the world's regions, I say there are standout standout countries we can start to look to. But again, on that total climate impact of buildings, particularly that material piece, I think Europe is a, a leading region. Some of those Nordic nations, the Netherlands, France and others who are starting to legislate on this issue. And I think the world is starting to, to look to Europe as a leader on that building materials piece. Why am I not surprised to hear you saying the Nordic nations? I feel in every in every interview I ever do, no matter what the subject, uh, leading the way are the are often the um, Nordic nations. But um, you mentioned COP. Do you think that governments uh, generally have a grip on this and an understanding of the scale of it? And do you feel confident that it's being sufficiently addressed? Um, I suppose, in a word, no. Um, there has been progress, that's for sure. The number of um, NDCs, these nationally determined contributions, the, the promises that countries show up to the COPs with on, on climate. Many of these NDCs now look at the building sector, try to tackle it in some ways, but it's very far from all of them. And I'd say, again, when the goal of the Paris Agreement is total decarbonisation, at the moment, the conversation fixates on energy use in buildings alone. That materials piece is largely out of view. And embodied carbon, so that's the carbon that relates to building products, manufacturer, construction processes, um, represents about 10% of global emissions through construction. So that is a, a pretty big chunk of global emissions that we're missing out. So we've got some way to go. Um, but I think what we saw at COP26, just gone in Glasgow, was this big coalition of the UK presidency of some of the major NGOs came together to really call on governments, on industry leaders and on cities to act. So we're seeing the topic grow in importance, but action still a long way off. So who then are the key stakeholders who you feel can positively change the system? I mean, we talked about people listening and there is, of course, always a way that as individuals we can change the culture. But who do you look to as the key stakeholders in this? I think to start with that that point that you've just made, I think workers and residents absolutely need to be critical voices at the power table shaping actually how this transition works. If it doesn't work for workers, if it doesn't work for residents and what people see in terms of their, the homes they want in the future, the homes they deserve, then this transition isn't going to work. In terms of currently who has the power to really start to influence the system? Well, of course, governments, but bodies like the EU, cities, those policymakers have a huge power, not just because in many countries, the, the, the central government is the largest procurer of construction in the country. So the largest client, if you will, they have a lot of, of buying power, but they set the rules of the game. So governments are critical actors to work with, and we're working with them in a number of the loudest foundations programs. Investors and financiers, another one now. There's 7 trillion euros of mortgage debt in Europe. Mortgages underwrite the housing system in many countries and working with the banks, the big institutional investors to shift that capital to green mortgages, for example, to alignment with the goals of the Paris Agreement and to get investors to understand at some stage when governments do move, there'll be a write down on all those homes, those offices that don't meet climate standards, getting investors to, to, to really start to back their climate targets, getting money to where it's needed, the kind of projects, renovation and a new build that we need. 
again, another another key set of, of actors and industry writ large, but particularly some of those demand side actors. So less those who manufacture you know, products or provide broader solutions into the built environment, more the developer and the design and, and the asset owning community who have a lot of the power about what gets specified in the built environment. And again, that, that kind of cast of actors um, are those who we're focused on in, in the programs that Loudest funds. Um, I presume that there are quite a lot of challenges in terms of coordinating a global approach because many of the solutions to all these things are very local based on individual countries and their various circumstances. I think that that is one of the challenges. But again, you know, we are hoping that more philanthropy and climate philanthropy comes into the built environment. Again, 40% of, of global emissions. But perhaps one of the reasons why more investment hasn't gone into this is because it is tricky and it's hyper local. Um, but we work with fantastic organizations like the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. They're there working with very local actors, the cities, but in a, a global coalition of leading cities. We're working with the World Green Building Council, who have green building councils across more than 70 countries, these nonprofits that work with all of the different actors across the built environment industry to look at how we move. And we're working with, for example, the Global Alliance for Building and Construction, who are working with governments across the world and all those other actors to really amplify that message. We really need to act on buildings to make sure that their climates, their social impacts are really shifted now. So again, there are fantastic actors who are there who are really helping solve that that local global divide in the way that their organizations and their networks are structured. And again, it's our hope that more climate philanthropists start to move into the built environment to tackle some of these wicked problems with us. When you look to the next five years, 10 years and further into the future, what do you envisage happening when it comes to the built environment and these things we're talking about? Do you feel broadly optimistic? I, I suppose you have to, to get up each morning. Sure. <laughs> I was going to say I'd be in the wrong business. You've got to be an optimist to be to be in the climate space. I mean, I think, you know, at COP21, after many years of banging our heads against the wall, the French government launched the first ever Buildings Day to really shine a light on this issue. But it was just a start after, you know, a decade or more of, of COPs failing to focus on the issue. At COP26, it was everywhere. So the narrative shifted, but action hasn't. We are starting to see those changes again, governments starting to set more stringent laws. And we've seen the EU, thanks to the great work of some of our partners, start to look towards regulating the impact of construction materials. Again, that 10% of global emissions that are made up by, by so-called embodied carbon emissions, all that stuff that comes from, from manufacture and so on. So there are some moves in the right direction. There's been great work by um, some of the colleagues running the Carbon Risk Real Estate Monitor, a project that set out what does the Paris Agreement mean for your building's energy performance? At what stage is it missing science-based climate targets? And there's now 500 billion euros of assets under management that's starting to look at how it can conform with this pathway. So there are fantastic signs of success. There's still a long way to go to define how do we make this transition work for people? And I think moving from Paris, where we showed an international agreement could work, to Glasgow, where we had to show it was working, corporates, governments, and everyone were starting to take action. As COP27 moves to an Africa COP hosted by Egypt, we have to 
show that this can work for everyone. If we don't, there will be a huge backlash. And so again, it's critical to be working at this, this intersectional point between climate and social impacts. I think if we can focus more there, the speed of change could be exponential. So I, I remain very hopeful. How can we make it work for everyone? Is it is it possible, as you said at the start, and as you've reiterated, it is the most important thing that we um, address the economics and the economic situation and social inequality. How can we make it work for everyone and not just be something that those in affluent countries and those with money can can even grapple with? Well, I think first of all, we've seen that we need much more evidence, much more understanding of, well, what does a just transition mean? If we're trying to deeply decarbonize the built environment and everyone's saying, hurrah, for a circular built environment, this 50% of all resources that goes into the construction sector, let's make that much more efficient and, and close the loop. Let's make it much more circular. But people aren't talking about, well, what's the quality um, of labor conditions on those working sites where people are having to pull nails out of, of you know, construction materials that have been stuck together for 50 plus years. We need to, to get a much clearer understanding. If we're going to fully decarbonize, how is that going to impact on workers? How is that potentially going to impact on residents? I think next we need to give workers and residents a seat at the table demystifying the role that they can play in this decarbonisation transition, making sure that we're improving working and housing conditions in the process. We're looking for those win-wins. And I think new economic thinking is going to play a role here. We're trying to transition 7 trillion euros of mortgage debt towards a green or a Paris agreement-aligned pathway. There are colleagues who are working on fantastic things like community land trusts, new forms uh, of land ownership, and of, of, of home building that can actually really place equity, social equity and climate at their core. So we're going to need new economic thinking as well, but just a very clear understanding. So we're investing and we're committing as the Loudest Foundation to make sure we can really understand what does it mean to have a just transition in the built environment, giving these voices that don't have power currently a real voice at the table, those workers and residents, and bringing new economic thinking into the room, bringing these models like the donut economy to life in the housing sector, for example. So those are just some of the building blocks, I think, that can help this really work for everyone. It's so fascinating talking to you, James. And given that this is your expertise, I ask a very broad question just at the end. Is there any message you feel that um, we haven't communicated in this sort of introduction to the built environment and the challenges that we face? I think there's a huge opportunity for philanthropists, for investors, for inventors alike to focus on this, this sector that represents 40% of global carbon dioxide emissions. It's critical we get it right and it's critical we turn more brilliant minds there. So to any of your listeners who are keen to get in touch, uh, who are keen to talk more and understand how they can act, we'd be very happy to open our doors. Thank you so much. It's incredibly interesting. A lot of people, myself included, weren't aware of the scale of this. And we talk about a lot of other things when we're turning our, our care as we should to the environment. But I don't think that this is necessarily been piercing through in the same way that other things have. I mean, would you say that's a fair judgment? I think that's a totally fair judgment. And in a previous life as a lawyer, I worked with lots of different sectors and I got you know, positively obsessed with this one because of that impact potential. And so I think that that would be my message. There is huge impact 
potential here. And indeed, these things shape our daily lives. So um, where, where, what other place more important to focus some of our attentions? James, thank you very much indeed. Wonderful. Thank you. You've been listening to In Line With Nature, brought to you by the Closters Forum, hosted by me, Hannah McInnes, produced by Claire Heaton, and supported by the wonderful team at the Closters Forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, or any questions you might have about the episode. Just send your email to podcast at theclostersforum.com and make sure to tune in for our next instalment.